0: to uh, Dale's study of the Shroud Uh, this is part four of our series Uh, last time in part three we finished up our discussion of the historical authenticity of the Shroud you know evidence place saying that the Shroud is older than the medieval period and uh, can be traced back to the sixth century and probably even to the first century belonging to the historical Jesus himself. However, uh, this time for this episode, we're going to shift focus onto really what was the subject of interest for myself when studying the Shroud evidence. I, I didn't really get into matters of historicity in my own Shroud chapter. I was more interested in the nature of the Shroud images, uh, how they were formed, um, and how they relate to my criteria for identifying what I call a G-belief authenticating event. Now, just before I get into that, I just wanted to give a quick quick announcement that, once again, I, I am absolutely delighted that I have so many people interested in this Shroud series. Uh, you know, I can see the listenership is, is going up uh, from parts one to part three. And uh, also, a lot of I'm getting a lot of good interaction from some of the comments and you know feedback uh, from you people. So I, I really appreciate that. Even even uh, one commenter providing a source of his own, providing a, a counter argument against the shroud. So uh, yeah, I just want you to know I appreciate that a lot. But yeah, just now let's get back into it. So um, so I said okay. So the shroud images and their formation constitute a G belief authenticating event. This is our uh, main argument. Okay, so, so what is a G-belief authenticating event? Well, that's basically in layman's terms. I'm, I'm saying that the Shroud images constitute, they're miraculous, or images, or, or images that, um, because of their formation constitute a sign from God that Christianity is true. Um, and I, I think that a reasonable person, and I, I when I say reasonable person, I mean the legal definition. An average person, average knowledge, average intelligence, and Uh, Discernment and that sort of thing I think could Not not necessarily would but could on a balance of probabilities see the uh, the Shroud of Turin's image formation as Constituting such an event uh, for the Christian religion now just as a bit of background I've created an 11 premise argument which I've really adapted from the skeptical argument from uh, Confusion or biblical confusion I'm going to be uh, providing a a link in the recommended sources so you can take a look at the skeptical version. But I've sort of twisted that and and said, okay, uh, Mr. Skeptic, uh, you're right. I I think there are some forms of confusion God wouldn't allow. And I can use that to argue that if the evidence for a particular event, in this case, the Shroud's image formation, fulfill these certain criteria... Well, since we know God can't allow any what I call undue confusion, uh, you know, confusion that interferes or hinders with our achieving our ultimate purpose in creation. So long as we meet certain conditions, then um, then, yeah, we can have confidence. This warrants the conclusion that the shroud images are, in fact, miraculous or these G-belief authenticating events, as I call them. So how do we identify such such events then? Well, in general, when when talking about mirror, various philosophers have written about this, you know, such as Gary Habermas, Mike Lacona, uh, Richard Swinburne has has a lot to say, has a book on this as well. But they've typically mentioned there's about three essential elements which must obtain in order for one to be warranted in concluding that a given event is miraculous um, in some way. So... What do these elements include? So the, the first one is quite obviously the the event in question has to be uh, proven to have occurred, or that it exists in the present, or that it will occur in the future. If if it's a you know a, a prophetic evidence or something like that. Secondly, the event's occurrence has to be quote unquote extraordinary in nature. Um, so that means by extraordinary, I just mean it, it's extraordinary to occur given solely given the natural laws and mechanisms operating on their own merits without any divine input or providence. Um, and by extraordinary, you could also use the word paranormal. It just means it's outside of our current well-established or well-known natural mechanisms and laws that a reasonable person the average person would would know about and then finally the third one is that the event has to take place within a context that is charged with religious significance and this is really a key indicator you know for for example uh some people point to the fact okay well let's let's say i have some you know i'm an i have some sort of illness or something and one day, uh, when some random guy comes to my door for a visit, we have a little chat and then the next day somehow I'm, I'm healed. This, this, uh, illness is gone. Would that be a miracle? Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's just a, uh, some kind of anomaly or something. But, um, let's say that same person was a, a, a priest, a Catholic priest or something. And they came and they prayed and they did a specific prayer, saying, "Jesus, uh, heal this, heal this person um, in in your name." Tomorrow, let it be gone. And then that person, the next day, is healed. There's a bit of a difference there in terms because of that religious context. I, I think you would be more warranted in that case in saying, "There's there's something here. This this is a sign from God." So, with my own criteria for being a G-belief authenticating event. Uh, I've expanded on these three essential elements that philosophers have, have uh, come up with, in order to make it de- easier to identify, you know, the, these these events that I call G-belief authenticating ones. And I'm going to provide my criteria uh, for this in the sources. So this will be premise eight in my um, in my eleven premise argument. It, you'll you'll see the table there, and that that forms the framework, the overall conceptual framework of how we're going to be evaluating the evidence for the shroud where we're going to be you know going through each criteria and, and demonstrating that the shroud can fulfill each of those now just to note that this podcast it's outside of the scope of my shroud series to analyze the criteria themselves to you know can i justify that these criteria would warrant a reasonable person in thinking that the shroud images are miraculous or or a genuinely authenticating event I'm more, at this point, just interested in saying, well, does it fulfill these criteria? And for anyone interested in, well, well can you justify these criteria? Who cares if it fulfills this, uh, if, if the criteria themselves are not good enough to, to, make, uh, to warrant such a conclusion in the first place? And just, you know, that, that will be coming at some point on, on this site or at Reason Press. Uh, I know Andrew has expressed some interest in debating my criteria as a whole. On uh, his show, ask an atheist anything, and plus, you guys have already heard some uh, some of uh, what David has to say on some of those criteria, such as the issue of subsumability and the issue of sufficient attachment. So, yeah, uh, you you guys will get some of that uh, coming up, but that's that lies outside of the scope of what I'm doing here in my shroud series. Just so you know. Okay, so. Without further ado, uh, let's get into it. What, what is the first criteria? Well, this is what I call Criterion A, and obviously it, it, we have to prove that the actual event, aka the Shroud's image formation, and, and the features that are associated with these images actually exist. Otherwise, if there's no event to explain, then there's nothing to talk about in the first place. So, okay, so that's what we're gonna be doing uh, in the next two parts, uh, going over what the various features are, you know what the and then from there we'll move on to criterion B which is you know what is their significance for the formation of these body and blood stain images that we have with the shroud man on the shroud of Turin so in establishing our main argument that the shroud's images and their formation constitutes a G Belief authenticating event. As I said, we're gonna be looking at certain features. However, there have been a heck of a lot of features that have been and data that we've got gotten from over the years and centuries of, of study, especially with STERP, you know, initiating that first scientific results and and all of the scientific investigation that's gone on since you know there are literally hundreds and and again i'm going to provide a couple sources with just they're just lists of all the facts categorized for you guys as to what you know what we know about the shroud images so i think you guys will be amazed there but um, yeah you know obviously any matters with religious significance the issue of bias will always come up um I have to admit, I, I fully admit, some people, some of you guys have left comments saying Dale's just totally biased, cognitive bias, and, you know, and all this, blah, blah, You don't really interact with the actual evidence. You just sort of dismiss it and, oh, he's biased. And I have to admit, yes, of course, everyone is biased, and I have my biases. I think the shroud is good evidence. I make no apology for that. Um, but I really do try my best to present a balanced approach with the apart from part one and two where I think with the personal attacks I was going a little bit too much so I cut that out but yes I have my bias but I'm presenting my reasons to you it's objective evidence it's it's tangible you can assess it you know I'm giving my sources I'm trying to present both sides as fairly as I can I'm saying I don't buy the skeptics claims it's it's wrong to me here's why I think so and what do you think? Um, you know, search on your own and make your own decision. So yeah, at the end of the day, that's the best we can anyone can do in regards to bias. However, in my study of the shroud, I have taken the issue of bias into account, especially with this criterion, and I've come up with a way, an approach to help mitigate against my own biases in in this approach. And it, it's similar to Gary Habermas. He he has invented what's called a minimal facts approach or Mike Lacona calls it his historical bedrock, you know, to studying the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. So he basically says there are certain facts which are so strongly attested and virtually all biblical scholars, no matter what walk of life they are, agree that these are facts. These are minimal facts that you have to accept or else you're not reasonable. And with those facts, they can establish the case for the resurrection. Well, likewise, with, with the shroud, I actually utilize an approach, what, I, what I've what i termed, this is my own term, so if it sounds stupid, it's, it's my fault. But I call it the minimal relevant features approach, or the MRF approach for short. And basically what I do is um, I, I take the features which are, in the first place, I only use features which are strongly attested, are strongly evidenced, um, so if you remember, I mentioned in part three about there's a uh, Shroud scholars classify the various facts. Uh, some, some of them put it as type A or type B and type C level facts or others classified as class one, two or three level facts. And when I'm selecting these features, I'm only using either type A uh, and B level facts or the class one facts, and the reason why I include type B is class two isn't exactly the same as type B. Type type B level facts are solid facts. Cla- class two is as well. I would say you know stuff like the pollen and dirt, but I don't. I, I restrict my use of any pro evidences on that on that side. Just just to be biased against my ar- my argument that I'm trying to establish here. So so really in the selection I'm using the uncontroversial or the the almost unquestionable level facts that we have or at the least they're very strongly evidenced and then the second criterion is the scholarly consensus and I'm not quite as rigorous as Gary Habermas I don't I don't think we need it as high but my level facts are I'm saying that there's a scholarly consensus that the facts I'm using are true about two-thirds to three-quarters of the scholars agree that this fact that I'm using is true So those are the two ways I select my minimal relevant features, the ones that I'm using to establish positively my case. And just a note on the scholarly consensus uh, issue, no, I I haven't gone out and actually counted individual Shroud scholars like Gary Habermas does in regards to the resurrection. This is just sort of my general sense from what I've read and what I've seen of the field. It, It seems like... A strong majority do support the facts that I'm using. However, the scholarly consensus that that isn't important. That's more of a psychological comfort criterion. It, it gives you you know some comfort that well the experts uh, they agree with this fact. Kind of kind of like how Darwinists like to say, well the, all the scientists, the, all the biologists agree that Darwinism and intelligent design is garbage. That must be true. Well, no, that that's not the way you determine truth. But it. It's something that's a comfort for your opinions. It's something that indicates, well, if the experts, if the majority of experts think this is true, there must be something there. And then it's really the first criterion. Well, it's the fact that these are strongly evidence that warrants the fact that you should be using these facts and that all image forming hypotheses must account for the facts that I'm including. You know, don't worry about the scholarly consensus. If you think that's meaningless and I I shouldn't be, we shouldn't care about that, just go by the fact that there's strong evidence. These are well-established and and or even unquestionable facts. They're uncontroversial. You know, so many many scholars accept them and they've been established scientifically. Now, before moving on, at this juncture, I can see the Shroud skeptic uh, coming up with an objection. Okay, um... So I understand your minimal relevant features approach, Dale, however, don't forget about that bias, right? Because you're the one selecting these features that you're going to be using and which other ones you're going to be ignoring. Maybe this could lead to some sort of selection bias effect, you know, may, maybe you're cherry picking, maybe you've got confirmation bias or, you know, one of these other selection bias fallacies that you're you're uh, using. and. This is actually uh, an interesting video by uh, an atheist, well-known atheist who's been on Unbelievable, Matt Dillahunty, um, and I'll, I'll link to his video because he has a, a video uh, where he responds to minimal fact type approaches, and he raises this as one of his issues. So. I think the shroud skeptic is is right here. I mean there there should be how do we mitigate against sort of selection bias? Am I just selecting the facts that well this helps my case? oh that that fact doesn't help my case. let's ignore that. So as part of my MRF approach, I also will be including an analysis of what's called what I call potential counterfeatures or counterfacts. To some degree we we address some of those in uh, part three of my study or, and and part one as well. The carbon dating is a counter feature, right? But you know, so I was presenting some of the historical inaccuracies. Those are what I call counter features. And as we go through our approach, you'll see that there are some other ones related outside of the historical issues as well. So yeah, I think these need to be included if you're going to have a well-rounded argument. You know, you know, you can't pick and choose which ones support your theory while ignoring ones that might go against it. So, yeah, basically on that end, I'm going to be including discussion of any potential counterfeatures or facts that seem to go against the truth of my, uh, my main argument that the Shroud images and their formation is a Ghibli authenticating event. And I give a less strict standard for their use. All they have to do, I don't care how many scholars agree with it. I don't care how strong the evidence is. As long as it's more probable than not that these facts are true and it goes against my theory, then I will include that feature against, you know, establishing my argument or in favor of the Shroud skeptic, any natural theories that the Shroud skeptic Puts forward. So the counterfeatures are only there to hurt my case. They won't be used in any way to, you know, argue against natu- a naturalistic hypothesis or anything like that. They will only be used if it helps the skeptic in this case. So, you know, those are the three elements of my minimal relevant features approach. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's it. So, yeah, let's move on to discussion. What are these features? And the first feature is, is something that we've known about for a while. But just so you have an idea of the landscape, what we're going to be doing is I, I have a total of about seven positive or supportive, minimal relevant features that I use. Uh, most of these come with multiple aspects entailed under each feature. You know, so as part as uh, for part four here, uh, I'm just going to cover the first five of these features, as well as all of their associated aspects and any potential counter features that come up. You know in relation to those first five and we'll save the final two mrfs or, or uh minimal relevant features for part five next time okay so the first five mrfs pertain specifically to the body images as opposed to the bloodstains that's the primary focus of the features on the shroud man so yeah the first one is one that we've known about uh, since 1898, and it was really the first feature that was uh, that shocked the world. Of you know, this this is what caused all of the scientists uh, to be, what the heck's going on? This isn't just some relic. We need to really look at this thing. Uh, you know, it, basically what, what I'm talking about is the shroud's photographic negativity. So in 1898, a guy named Secondo Pia, he took the first ever photographs of the shroud. And what happened was later that night, as he was in his dark room developing the photos, he, he saw something on the photographic negative negatives. And it, you know, this, it caused him to drop, it almost caused him to drop his photographic plates. He discovered that the Shroud Man was actually a photographic negative image as seen with the naked eye. So when he was looking at the negative photographic plates, that was actually the true positive image. That's the way the image is supposed to look if it was, you know, a regular picture or a regular photograph that had been developed. Basically, the, what we're saying with this negativity is that the shroud man has undergone a left to right and light to dark reversal when it's when it's seen with the, the naked eye. As I said, Pia discovered the true photographic positive. It was a much clearer image. It, you know, very realistic. Certain details that don't appear with the with the naked eye all of a sudden showed up. And um, you know, for Pia, this caused shockwaves throughout the scientific community and. For Pia, he, really, he literally said, he, geez, I'm the first man in nearly 1900 years to gaze on the actual body of Christ as he had been laid in the tomb. You know, Pia's enthusiasm aside, quite obviously this finding was sort of the impetus for all later or subsequent scientific, medical, or historical investigations of the Shroud and sort of shook the Shroud skeptics that, oh, it's just another religious relic, no, nothing to see here, move along. Now, unfortunately for Pia, for the rest of his life, he he had to live under suspicions and claims of fraud by these shroud skeptics. And it really wasn't until after his death in in 1931, when a professional photographer named Gisby and took some took about a dozen new official photographs, obviously using camera equipment that was vastly superior to to what Pia had back in 1898. And it was really at this time there was certain there was multiple photographic experts to ensure against any suspicion of fraud or anything like that so it wasn't until 1931 that this fact became established no one questioned i mean holocaust deniers and flat earth flat earthers don't deny this fact you can do a quick google search You know, those black and white photos, that's what we're talking about. That's the photographic negative images uh, that Enray took that constitute the photographic negativity of the shroud. That's undeniable. However, counterfeature alert. Remember, I I mentioned that I would be addressing certain counterfeatures, and there is one related to the negativity. Some shroud skeptics, uh, such as Walter McCrone or Joe Nickel, have brought up the issue of the fact that... Well, hang on. The, the Shroud man's image does have, is uh, at least partially photographic, photographically negative. But it's only a quasi-negative image. Look at the hair. Look at the beard. It would have to be, you're saying his hair was white. Well, Jesus was a young man in his 30s. He wouldn't have had white hair and beard. Let, let's listen to how Joe Nickel describes it. He, he describes it. So as in the past, Shroud proponents have fooled many, beginning with themselves, by claiming that the Shroud is a perfect photographic negative which no artist could have produced in the Middle Ages. When in fact the shroud image is not it is not all photographic, since the positive image shown in the reversals of the image exhibits a figure presumably Jesus with a white hair with white hair and beard the exact opposite of what would be expected for Jesus the image on the cloth is therefore a quasi negative exactly like that produced by an artistic technique also just note uh, this counter is also brought up with regards to the blood stains because the blood stains are photographic positive images unlike the body image. now Unfortunately, the shroud skeptic uh, is getting a little bit too presumptuous here. He's just plain mistaken. He's going too far. Uh, he's going further than what the evidence scientifically would allow you to conclude. Here's what uh, shroud expert Barry Schwartz says: Scientifically, we just we can't use the shroud's hair color on the photo negative image to argue one way or the other about the color of the man's hair at least not with any kind of scientific veracity. As such, negative images have no way of capturing diverse colours, such as, you know, blonde or light brown hair, versus, you know, uh, having dark dark hair or something like that. Yeah, I think you have to acknowledge... Uh, there is some truth to what they're saying, but it, it's, not, uh, it's not conclusive enough to say, well, Jesus had white hair or something like that. The Shroud skeptic goes beyond the data when they claim, make that claim. However, secondly, uh, let's assume the Shroud skeptic's right. Pretend the hair and beard are white at the time of the image in quotation. Who cares? Jesus, maybe during the resurrection event, a supernatural event, his hair was white for some reason at that and was encoded as such on the shroud certainly the book of revelation chapter 1 verses 12 to 16 mentions that jesus's hair was white like wool like snow so it does seem that the early christian church could have a an acceptable conception of jesus having white hair maybe there was actually some historical truth behind verses like this just as a cautionary note though obviously revelation is apocalyptic literature it's highly symbolic so you know don't rely on that too heavily uh to prove prove a case but still it establishes this principle that early christians could depict jesus as having white hair and beard and maybe that's based in some kind of historical reality. Either way, I, I don't think the quasi-negativity counterfeature is really compelling evidence against our main argument. I would deem it to be an irrelevant factor either way. I'm, I'm happy either way. It doesn't make any impact. So really, any any and all evaluations in terms of image-forming mechanisms will we'll assume either or option. Whatever, whatever is beneficial for the shroud skeptic, we'll assume that to be the case. Um, when we're Evaluating the various image-forming mechanisms in criterion B. Now, uh, there's also a second aspect that Pia discovered back in 1898, and this is the fact that the Shroud man's images, as seen in the photographic negative, are have a very high resolution compared to what was seen with the naked eye, which some Shroud experts call the image diffuseness of the the image as we see it with our eyeballs, with our eyes. So, first, in the first place, with respect to the high resolution of the Shroud man's images. STERP has actually taken measures to scientifically quantify the details of this specific feature. So, for example, the the lips, which have the lowest image resolution, can actually be measured to be uh, 4.9 plus or minus 0.5 millimeters at the 5% MTF value whereas the blood stains on the other hand have a much higher resolution being at least 10 times better okay that's a bunch of scientific mumbo jumbo what the heck does that mean so in layman's terms, it basically means that the Shr- the uh, Shroudman's images, based on the high resolution, means that we can see details as small as 0.5 centimeters or one-fifth of an inch, can be discerned on the negative images of the Shroudman. So the- these are things like the lips, or we can see a, a non-image area that's detectable between the Shroudman's fingers, for example. Uh, so that's really what we mean by the high-resolution feature. And as I said, this, this is in direct contrast to what we see when we just look at the shroud with our eyes. Because this, I think I alluded to in a previous podcast that the shroud images to the naked eye lack any sort of definable border or, or contours which surround them. Um, and this is why it, it it's hard to make out uh, or see the shroud, and especially when when standing close up, that the body images actually seem to completely disappear when viewed with the human eye. And standing up close approximately within one to two meters or six to ten feet Uh, so that's the image diffuseness um, aspect in contrast to the high resolution which is seen in the photographic negative images of the shroud okay um, so moving on to our second minimal relevant feature this refers to the body image uniformity, and this one is not as well known. This, this MRF refers to the fact that the body images are uniform in various respects, and there's about two to four aspects. Uh, the first two are really the strongest. Basically, what we're referring to here, uh, and these ones are uncontroversial, scientifically documented as well. So the first one is the fact that the body images have a uniform intensity Of body image, color. So what that means is that each and every single image-bearing fibril, so each you know thread, each thread is made up of about I don't know a couple hundred fibrils. Fibrils are very very tiny uh, things that make up you know fibers that make up the thread. They're they're smaller than the diameter of a human hair. And each and every single one of these fibrils is colored separately from each other and individually with the exact same intensity of color as every other one. So that, that straw yellow coloring that you see, that intense intensity is the exact same on each separate individual fibril it's it's not haphazard as you know with differing intensities in different areas like you would expect if someone just used a paintbrush and and you know painted over it or something like that just a just a quick note here I'm, i'm gonna mention this in the sources as well but for some of the sources that i'm using uh with with uh some of the features here like the uniformity or the 3d aspect i've had to rely on books or uh or you know scholarly, the peer-reviewed journal articles that STIRP published back in the, the 80s when they did their investigation. And unfortunately, those those materials are copyrighted, so I, I'm not able to attach that file or, or there's no web link that I can provide you guys. Um, what, I, what I'm thinking of doing, I, I've reached out to my friend, uh, shroud expert Barry Schwartz. He's the one who sent me uh, basically 26 of these peer-reviewed journal articles by the STIRP scientists in a in a zip file. And I'm going to ask him if I can provide his email contact on the website so anyone interested can reach out to him. And I, I think he would be happy on a personal level to, to send you all 26 of these files. I'll, I'll mention t- at least two of the articles where I'm getting the 3D, where I'm getting some of these features from that aren't referenced or don't have web links. Um, so you can, you can search it out for yourself. Uh, and or, you know, if you're interested in talking with Bear, I know he'd be thrilled uh, to talk with you one-on-one if you're, you're interested as well. But before I, before I do that, I, I've sent him an email to ask him if he'd be willing to, for me to do that and provide his email contact at least. Um, so I'll let you know what he says. But even if, even if let's pretend he's in a bad mood and says no or something like that, I'll still provide a couple articles uh, on the uniformity feature or at least um, somehow you might be able to get it and double check what I'm saying you may have to pay money I don't know but at least you'll have that reference then okay so uh, yeah let's going on with the uniformity uh, the second aspect is the uniform density or density uniformity aspect and what this means is that the frontal and dorsal body images have optical densities that are nearly the same. So what that means, it means in terms of the relative lightness and darkness of the frontal and dors- dorsal images, they are essentially the, st- the same in terms of that color density. So that that's, you know, STIRP basically determined they have the same maximum optical densities of the frontal and dorsal image. And because of this, it's difficult when viewing the Shroud to judge, at least with normal human visual perception, which of those images is darker than the other. They, they appear to be about the same. Furthermore, just as a, a quick side note, this is more relevant to another feature coming up, but STERP also confirmed that the Shroud image is continuously shaded on both images, at least to some degree over its full extent. I'll, I'll get into that later. That's part of another feature. But yeah, to you know, to be more specific, uh, in terms of being scientifically quantified, they've discovered that both the frontal and dorsal body images are very faint, each having typical reflected optical densities of less than 0.1 within the visible range. Now, just before not to get uh, too ahead of myself with the evaluation of the various image forming mechanisms, but just to give you a sense of why is this important? What the heck are you talking about? There are gonna be some image forming hypotheses that postulates that we might, you know, that has certain postulations where we might expect one of the images to be darker than the other, or or in, in some cases significantly more so than the other one. You know, for example, you know, perhaps due to the effects of gravity, if pressing down on a body shaped object that's lying in a, in a supine position on its back or something, you would expect the dorsal image to be darker solely because of the effects of gravity compared to the frontal one. Okay, so just one little caveat with this one, and it's important to note that there are exceptions to this dent, uniform density. Particularly, this is with regard to the facial image. That does seem to be darker than its course its corresponding backside you know the back of the head and that that is uh, it does have a visibly higher color density or it is a lot darker so just be aware that there is that exception but in general with the rest of the body they have the same maximal optical densities more or less okay uh, so I think there are a couple other aspects related to uniformity here these ones are a little bit more controversial though so the first of these is is the fact that the there is what's called cylindrical uniformity. This is what I call it anyways. But um, some strip scientists have discovered a separate but related aspect where they say, quote-unquote, if a fiber is uniformly colored, it is uniformly colored around the entirety of its cylindrical surface, so each fi- around the c- cylindrical fiber. So... Uh, you know, it's basically saying this uniform color surrounds the entire surface of each fibril, leaving the inner portions completely uncolored. It's just the outer, the outer rim all the way around. You know, 360 degrees around. There's that color. However, I have to admit that this is this fact is not good enough to count as a minimal relevant feature. It is rendered as a class two fact by by some proshroud experts. Um, others others give it a higher higher rating but because i found some pro shroud experts and and i I recognize that there's some controversy here. I, I've opted not to include it, and at least until there's further confirmation, because really it, it could be the case that it was the lighting that was used in collecting the photographic and observational evidences, which support the veracity of this feature or this aspect. That could have played a factor in coming to the conclusion that was reached. Um, so in, until that's corrected for, and until there's you know some kind of additional microscopic testing, Uh, using rigorously controlled lighting, I'm not going to be including cylindrical uniformity as a minimal relevant feature. I I might bring it up out of interest, but it's not going to be held against any naturalistic theory. So uh, I think the next feature, the last aspect of the uniformity feature is the substance uniformity. This one's pretty simple. It basically just says that whatever the mechanism was that created the body images, it seems To have operated uniformly on diverse substances, such as skin or hair, possibly even nails, and if, if you buy the arguments, the flowers and even metal from those coins—remember those Pontius Pilate coins I I referenced in part three—if they're there, it's also working on metal. So it seems to be working on various diverse substances. However. this fact, I would say, is not necessary for establishing our main argument, and also some theories don't postulate it. So ra- rather, you know, they don't postulate a real human body or something like that. And even though I think we can prove that, it's not necessary for my argument. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't even want to say necessarily. You know, I don't want to assume as a minimal relevant feature it has to be a real body. You know, maybe it was a statue, so it's all the same substance or something like that. So. The substance uniformity and cylindrical uniformity. Just be aware of them as aspects. With the latter, the substance uniformity, I will use this as a, a minimal relevant feature for any theories that uh, that accept or that they posit the use of a body as opposed to a statue or something like that. If you get gi- if they if the Shroud skeptics themselves give me differing substances, then this feature will apply. Okay, so our third our third uh, feature is one of the most famous, it's the most famous, I would say, and it's the three-dimensional information or data that's encoded on the shroud. So basically, STERP scientists, uh, even prior to STERP, this finding was made back in 1976 when a physicist and future STERP leader, John Jackson, along with an image specialist, Bill at of uh, Sandia Laboratory, They used what was called a VP8 image analyzer on the negative photographs, uh, Henri's, you know, 1931 negative photographs, and first discovered a remarkable feature. They, They found that the luminescence and or image density, so that's the darkness, right, dark versus light, lighter colored areas, those distributions of both the frontal and dorsal body images can be correlated mathematically to the distances between the encoded underlying and or overlying, in the case of the uh, dorsal image, man and the shroud itself, which was wrapped around him. Such correlations can then be mapped topograph- topographically, Using various scientific devices, so basically the the body images actually convey tridimensional or three-dimensional information. This is this is incredible, and it was this this discovery. You think Secundo Pia's discovery back in 1898 sent shockwaves around the world. This was at, caused so much of a stir. I mean, th- it was this finding single-handedly that uh, served as the biggest impetus for forming STIRP two years later in 1978. People were fascinated by this this. Single discovery. So, so yeah. As I said, these, these distributions apparently correspond correspond precisely to the same shape and contours expected from those produced by a human body lying in a reclined position. Just you know, some little background on the VP eight uh, VP eight image analyzer before I give a quote of what they they find. This is basically a piece of space age imaging equipment. It works like a form of radar, so it's able to de- detect, based on these density, di- uh, color density distributions, how far the shroud man would have been in relation to the cloth at the time the images were formed. Really, you know, NASA uses this, used to use this type of technology to calculate the sort of distances between uh, various objects out in outer space and stuff like that. But you know let, let's just give a quote here. So. Uh, what did uh, Jackson and Modern say when they made their discovery? So this is their quote of their finding. Quote, unquote, it, it was revealed that there was a correlation between the density or darkness of the image on the shroud and the distance the cloth was from the body at the time the image was formed. We, the, the researchers... Calculated that the image on the shroud was formed at a cloth-to-body distance of up to approximately four centimeters, but beyond that, imaging did not occur. occur. So, what that means is, is, basically, any body areas that would have been four centimeters or more away from the cloth at the time the images were encoded, those didn't get encoded at, you know, on the shroud at all. They, there's just nothing there. So, you know. Basically, things like the hollows of the shroud man's eyes, they're, they're a lot less dense or dark than the tip of the shroud man's nose, for instance. So, I, I think that, I think you guys get it from that, from what we're talking about here at least. Now, just some qualifications on this feature. Um, it does have to be said that the dorsal, the backside image, displays quite a bit less three-dimensional variety than the frontal image, uh, especially the facial image, because um, as you can imagine, faces have quite a lot of differing levels, right? Your cheeks compared to your nose or the hollows of your eyes. But uh, with the dorsal image, this this is really presumed to be the effects of gravity. It, you know, it flattened, the body flattens against The cloth lying on a stone slab or something like that also i I also have to admit as a qualification that there are some minor disruptions in the shroud's three-dimensional information uh you know it's it's not perfect but really these disruptions only occur in locations where there is something disrupting the results so this you know like the blood stains you know but any body areas where, it, where it's unhindered, there's no blood stains or water stains or something like that, the 3D information represented there is spot on. It's perfect. And finally, we also have to clarify something here because I, I'm using the word 3D. Barry Schwartz would probably take me to task for misleading you because it's, it's not actually the case. These shroud images are not three dimensional. Um, they're not at least not truly three dimensional, right? Because that would imply 360 degrees of information. So instead, it's more accurate to say that, in Barry's words quote unquote, what we actually see in the shroud image is an accurate dimensional relief similar to that created by the bas-relief art technique you know the result in the shroud is a natural relief of a human form so just be aware that's technically the way you should say it it conveys this topographical information and three-dimensional features but it's not 360 degree uh, of information like you know like a statue or something like that it's more akin to a bas-relief however i think it's important to mention here that no other artwork, picture, or photograph in history, nothing, not a single one, I dare the shroud skeptics listening to find one, uh, has ever had this three-dimensional property. You know, the the best the artists of such works can do is really just suggest depth through the use of shadow and light effects uh, or employing, you know, illusion-inducing techniques of some kind. Um, So really, artistic methods uh, of this nature, at least, can only really trick the eyes into perceiving the dimension of depth but they do not actually produce it and fortunately for us the VP8 image analyzer it doesn't share the same misperceptions that human beings do through you know or, or the illusions that human beings can be privy to w- using the unaided eye. What this means is that the only way for an artist some painter or something like that to reproduce the 3D, 3D data revealed by this modern scientific technology would be if uh, him or her painted a a typographical diagram of a human face. But once you do that, you know, the resultant image would no longer look anything like a real human face when we were looking at it with the naked eye. Instead, you know, we would very clearly have a discernible diagram of a human face not a picture of a human face uh so yeah i think that's sort of ridiculous of any shroud skeptics to try and mention but yeah we'll we'll get into that in the image forming mechanisms in criterion b when we get to there so yeah let's let's move on to the next uh this is our fourth minimal relevant feature this again has multiple aspects unlike the the third feature so this refers to the vertical projection or vertical alignment uh, or wrapping distortions that are um have been found on the shroud. But in the fir- first place, the first aspect of this feature is that what we have with the shroud is both images are f- continuous full-length images. So remember I, I sort of alluded to in I think in the uniformity aspect that STRP has confirmed that the shroud image is continuously shaded to some degree over its full extent in all areas of both the frontal and dorsal images. There is at least some discoloration of the fibrils of the threads. Of, of course, as as we'll learn later on, this is except in the location of the blood stains. You know, there, there's no body images underneath the blood stains, and this is going to be a big problem for shroud skeptics coming out when we evaluate certain theories. However, I do have to qualify this because there has been um, a further nuance to this aspect, which doesn't affect what I'm saying, but it's it's more. Uh, some shroud researchers have used photomicrographs and they've determined that the color of the image areas does actually have a discontinuous distribution along the yarn of the cloth so you know there are some striations that are evident here along some of the individual fibers making up a yarn you know some are colored others aren't but not others so uh yeah some some shroud skeptics or experts such as Colin Berry, refer to this as the half tone aspect in relation to these striations but Bear in mind, this, this qualification is at, you know, the microscopic level. It has nothing to do with disproving that the shroud images are continuous on both frontal and dorsal sides in their in their entirety, the full length. It, it's true that it's continuously shaded to some degree over its entire length. So uh, the second and most important aspect of this feature is that we have vertically aligned wrapping distortions. So basically some Shroud experts like John Jackson have have proven mathematically that there are certain wrapping distortions that are consistent with those that would be obtained if A body was lying on its back, were wrapped in the shroud, and then the mapping of the image features from the body to the cloth uh, of the frontal image is more or less vertical, you know, corresponding to the direction of gravity. So, you know, so- sometimes this has been referred to as the orthographic nature of the shroud's body images. Uh, and it, it really means that whatever caused the encoding of these body images on the shroud, John Jackson has. Scientifically determined, and I'm going to provide his article p- providing the proof or evidence for people to look into. It, it, he says it must have traveled only in one particular projection path. So, if you're thinking of radiation, it, it was in a vertically collimated straight line or rectilinear path from the body straight to the claw. Hopefully, if you guys look up the source, this you know, he gives some pictures to kind of illustrate what he's talking about. But in his own words, so he, he says a path that is vertical or parallel to the axis of body slash cloth symmetry traveling in a straight vertical rectilinear path in the direction of gravities. And only this path can will produce a the undistorted representation of an actual human body that we see on the shroud. Anything other than straight, vertically collimated paths from the body to the cloth would imply the use of, wouldn't work. They would produce distorted images. Or you know, Alan, a shroud skeptic, Alan has brought brought up an argument against this projection thing because oh well, they'll they'll be wrapping distortions, kind of like the mask of Agamemnon. It'll be flattened out. But well, no, not if this vertically mapped wrapping distortion theory is, is true as Jackson has mathematically and scientifically proven. I'll I'll provide the article for that. You decide for yourselves. But, but yeah, obviously this... Okay, well, what the heck could that be that would travel... Obviously, John Jackson has his theory that radiation, the body magically disappeared, and radiation traveled in a vertical, straight-line, rectilinear path to form the body images onto the cloth as as it collapsed. However, what, one interesting thing here is actually Jackson was wrong. There, there is another path that could possibly still account for the data, uh, and this was suggested through Giulio Fonte. He suggested that, you know, electrostatic mechanisms create curvy, linear uh, encoding paths, and this would equally account for the data, right? Because it's kind of like a curved ball versus a fastball. The fastball goes in a straight line vertically up to the cloth and lands in the catcher's mitt, but a curvilinear uh, path, like electrostatic models, might imply, well, they curve out, but then they end up in the same spot. They curve back in and go straight to the catcher's mitt. So just be aware that, yeah, I think it would be rectilinear or curvilinear paths that could account for this feature or could be, could be possible. But just be aware any other projection paths have been scientifically documented by Jackson to produce a distorted figure, uh, especially if the shroud was tightly wrapped because Jackson, his theory is a cloth collapse theory. So the body disappears, creating a vacuum. Uh, Again, I'm gonna provide sources on the cloth collapse as well as counter sources from Rob Rucker, another pro shroud guy who says, well, the cloth collapse doesn't make sense. But um, yeah, this, this, Causes the shroud as it collapses; it sort of flattens out a bit and avoids some of the distortions or wraparound effects that shroud skeptics like Alan try to try to bring up. So yeah, mo- moving on. Um, another related aspect of this feature is that, well, remember I said it's not a three hundred and sixty degree uh, three dimensional information. Well, in the first place, no body sides or tops of the man's head. Have been encoded this is consistent with the vertical alignment aspect you know neither the frontal nor the dorsal body images have the sides of the body or the top of the man's head it's just it's cut off it, it's it seems like it was just vertical and Nothing coming out of the sides of the man's head or from the top of the man's head It was a strictly vertical image forming path. Finally uh, the last aspect under this fourth feature is uh, The issue of non-contact zones basically this image forming if uh, you know if you're convinced by Jackson in the vertical alignment of the shroud shroud images there are various areas that are encoded on the shroud but would not have been in contact with a naturally draped cloth over an underlying body for for example you know the the area in between the nose and the cheeks that wouldn't have been touching a cloth uh, at least not a naturally draped one so you know you're going to have to come up with some form of external pressure being applied or some other factor as we'll discover with John German's theory, but which would cause the cloth to conform to these areas that would not otherwise be normally in contact with the cloth. So, yeah, I think we, we have these likely non-contact areas that were improbable to be touching the cloth. So that means whatever mechanism formed it probably traveled through empty space on, from the body onto the cloth. Well, that sounds like uh, radiation. That that's uh, That's a good candidate for that kind of thing. Um, Okay, Uh, so our final feature, you guys are probably ripping your hair, let's get to it. Um, This is the fifth and final and this is related to the body image superficiality. So as the final feature we're going to be discussing here, um, there are again multiple aspects, at least four, under uh, under this minimal relevant feature. So what do we mean? What does it mean the body images are superficial? Okay, well, that that typically refers to something that only resides on an external surface of an object. That's what we mean by superficial. So it's important to note that with the shroud, things are a little bit more complicated. There's at least three different senses in which the shroud images can be said to be superficial. Those images, the first level is the obvious one. That's at the fabric level, the images are superficial. So basically, the at the fabric level, these superficial colorations cumulati- cumulatively produce the phenomenon, the image. So it, it, it doesn't soak all the way through and that sort of thing. It, it seems to be just at a superficial level, at that, you know, macroscopic observational level. The second is the one is the thread level superficiality. So that means that the coloration that makes up the the body images extend only to depths of two to three fibers into the thread. Bear in mind, a typical thread is is made up of approximately 200 fibrils. So it it only covers two or three of these fibers, of these 200 fibers making up a single thread. Really superficial. Finally, there's a third level as well, and this is at the level of the fibers, the image is superficial. Basically, Basically saying that the color alteration of the fiber, the individual fiber, Is restricted to chemical changes in approximately the 200. I think this is micromillimeter. You can. I'm going to be providing a source for these three levels, so look that up. It's nm, whatever that means, micrometer, micrometer, or something like that. A thick external layer. So, basically, an individual fiber. It's just on the primary cell wall of that fiber. You know, it, it doesn't extend. It doesn't go all the way through the individual fibers. Remember, these fibers are smaller than the diameter of a human hair. This is incredible, and this is gonna rule out a whole bunch of skeptics' uh, artistic theories, that's for sure, but we'll get to that later. So, okay, so this this is just their quote of what I just said, but yeah, so at the fabric level, the image's coloring only resides on the external surface of the cloth, and does not penetrate the whole cloth in any image area. And it doesn't go beyond where any two or more fibrils cross over one another. Um, So that, you know, if there was a crossover there would be a white spot on the lower fibril. The thread level, as I said, it it only extends down to the top two to three fibrils of each thread. Only those top two to three fibrils are colored. The rest are white. They're left uncolored. And then finally at the fibril level the image only resides in the external surface corresponding to the primary cell wall and the cellulose of the linen fiber residing in the secondary cell in the secondary cell wall is not colored Um, and then they also say that the medullas of the 10 to 20 um diameter fibers in image areas also appear colorless so yep that's their that's their definition of how they say it uh that's sort of the technical Quote. But yeah. So just be aware there are these three aspects: fabric, thread, and fiber levels, where the co- image colors are super are said to be superficial, as opposed to extending deeper into the cloth. Now, oftentimes, just be aware that oftentimes with image-bearing uh, mechanisms, you'll you'll hear shroud skeptics making boastful, confident claims. Oh, we we've duplicated uh, the super the shroud's superficiality. We've created superficial images. But remember, don't believe them. Look at the results and see what they actually claim, because they they like to use this type of rhetoric. But it's a lie. Oftentimes they they will have claimed to have produced one level of superficiality, but they're totally oblivious to the fact that they have to fulfill the other two. It's not enough. It's not enough to be a fabric level superficial uh, image. You also. Scientifically have to be superficial at the thread and fiber levels as well in order to account and to truly duplicate the shroud's images. So just be aware of that trick. If some if a shroud skeptic does tell you they've copied the shroud's superficiality, get some more details, probe a little deeper. Well, what do you have you done all three levels? Like, you know, try to find out a little bit more about it. So our second aspect is related to superficiality, but it's the fact that some Shroud researchers say there is a double superficiality, uh, at least of the facial facial reason, region of the frontal body image, and not a double superficiality for the dorsal side image. So, so you know, you guys know about the superficiality of the images. It's saying on the back side of the cloth, there's also a second superficial image, of the face that um, some people, Giulio Fanti, for example, has claimed to find. And he was looking at photos, and in the year 2000, the Holland backing cloth was unstitched from the shroud, and it allowed a scanner to pass between it and the shroud to examine the backside of the cloth for the first time in centuries. And this, according to Giulio Fanti, has led to the findings that there is a face, facial image on the back of that cloth that's also superficial and I, I'm going to provide a Giulio Fonti's article he, he wrote an article in 2004 called the double superficiality of the frontal image in the Turin shroud and I'll put that article there for you guys to assess on your own however for our purposes this this feature is controversial and it's it's not going to be an MRF or a minimal relevant feature that I'm comfortable using really because um you know, out of consistency, I, I use the expertise of Messchild Fleury-Lemberg, who led the 2002 restoration project, and she examined firsthand the backside of the cloth, and she says there are no such images. You know, if I'm going to use her expertise, she has firsthand observational evidence more so than anyone else. Giulio Fonte is, is using photographs to make his conclusion. So I'm going to side with Lemberg against my argument and for the Shroud skeptic here. This this will not be a minimal relevant feature. I trust her firsthand observations. If I use her against the Shroud skeptics, I have to use her against the pro-Shroud side as well. I have to be consistent and systematic on that front. Um, but just be aware that there is this finding which could be confirmed later on with further you know, maybe STIRP 2 or a further scientific confirmation or something. So be aware that it's out there and, you know, we'll we'll mention it from time to time, but it won't be held against any ordinary naturalistic theory for how the images were formed. Okay, Um, now related to that, the third aspect is that it's been scientifically proven that there is no cementation or no evidence for capillary flow or action between the threads or fibers of the shroud. So this is sort of related to the superficiality thread level because basically the body images, unlike the blood marks, uh, they show no sign of cementation or evident capillary flow between the individual crisscrossing image bearing fibrils, whereas the, the blood stains do show this, uh, this evidence. So, you know, it, it's sort of just to sort of give you an analogy it's sort of like when you spill a drink on a carpet, it, it doesn't just stay on the superficial layers, there's evidence of cementation. Certain, you know, it sinks down into the fibers of your carpet. If you use some sort of liquid medium, uh, like a paint, for example, or you know that that's what we call capillary flow. It goes, it sinks down deep into the carpet, causes them to have the fibrils to have a cemented or a matted together type appearance. None of this is found on the shroud. It's it's the exact opposite of what we find, and this is going to come in handy when we're ruling out certain image-forming mechanisms, like the painting one, that uses. that it supposedly uses a liquid medium or if you're using any kind of liquid if you're washing powdered pigments off uh you know i I think there's some shroud skeptics like darren who who brings that up that's going to be a problem this is going to be a problem for you guys coming up now the final aspect of our final feature is the fact that the body images are not saturated they're not they're not as fully dark or dense as they could be now this is in contrast to the blood stains because those we can tell were saturate, saturate. Uh, more on that when we get to it. And, and this is despite I, I get that the blood stains look faded today, but that's irrelevant. We know it, at the time they were encoded, they were saturated. They were as dark as they could possibly be. The body images are not; uh, they are not saturated. So, and this is the same for both the frontal or dorsal side body images in terms of image saturation. So. Basically, in, in a quote for the STERP scientists, uh, this absence of saturation implies that the image formation did not, quote-unquote, go to completion, i.e. it did not produce the maximum number of conjugated carbon-to-carbon double bonds, or in layman's terms, it, it, it's not as dark. The color isn't as dense or as dark as as it could be. This has further been substantiated. In 2002, Giulio Fonte and Moroni, two shroud experts, as that I've, one of which I've mentioned before, Actually, math uh, scientifically calculated that the percentage of saturated pixels for the shroud face specifically is only 23% plus or minus 5%. So that very little. It, it could get a lot darker, 100% minus 23%. You know, that's 77% or something like that. It could be 70%, 77% darker than what we have right now. And, you know, as we'll see later on, this aspect does play a significant role in assessing some of the various... Uh, image-forming hypotheses that we're going to be assessing in criterion B. Okay, uh, so I know you're looking forward to it. This is the conclusion of part four. Um, in closing off part four of our series, I, I just wanted to say we began our assessment of you know what a G-Bleaf authenticating event is. You know what what is criterion what criterion A is about, and describing our minimal relevant features approach. You know so how how we select which of the various facts and features about the Shroud's images we're going to be utilizing in evaluating the various image-forming mechanisms in Criterion B late in a later podcast. We've also described the first five out of seven uh, minimal relevant features, along with all their attendant aspects, and we even included the first counter feature uh, from the quasi-negativity objection and, and subsequently refuted that as being unproblematic for establishing our main argument either way it's it's not going to be an issue as you guys will see but uh, in fairness to the shroud skeptic we will not hold whatever whatever interpretation of the quasi negativity issue supports the natural theories or mechanisms we will go with that to bend over backward for the shroud skeptic, so what are we going to do next time in part five? Well, we're going to finish off criterion A by presenting the final two minimal relevant features or MRFs. Really, these are related to the various biological anatomical details. You know, this including aspects about the blood stains and body fluids that are present on the shroud, and as well, uh, just list off some of the additional features, which is MRF number seven, uh, again, which are relevant to the image formation question. So yeah, with that uh, said, thank you so much for listening and have a great week. Bye-bye.